nothing in the eyes of the people who did the abuse. They were, they were, they were making money from them, but the kids themselves weren't getting anything. There's an appalling disrespect for the humanity of these children. And in the eyes of the world, they were worth absolutely nothing for years. Now, we know that 270 million and 93 million are ridiculous. We even know that no dollars is ridiculous, don't we? But tonight I want us to think about what in God's eyes are we worth? What are you worth? What's the person sitting next to you worth in God's eyes? And we're going to look at a hard truth and a hope-filled truth. So we're going to hear something hard and something full of hope as we work out our value in God's eyes. I mentioned IJM, International Justice Mission. It's a, uh, a group of Christian lawyers that are seeking to bring justice to the people who are the least in the world. This is a picture uh, from a, a brick-making uh, um, kiln in India. And these people are slaves. They were tricked there and they have debts that they can never repay. They have debts that they can never repay. And so they basically live as slaves uh, to this person uh, who owns them. Jesus has something to say to us tonight about our state. In, uh, In John 8, Jesus says this. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been slaves to anyone. How can you say we shall be set free? I just, I just want to bring you into the moment here. I think this is an Australian response. Okay? Jesus is saying, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And their answer to this incredible revelation is to say, we've never been slaves. We're Abraham's children. We were born free. We are the freest people in the whole world. Jesus, you can keep your freedom. Look, I think if you said to Australians, I can set you free tonight, that's what they'd say. We don't need your freedom. It's not a thing that I'm hungering for. I don't need any of this additional freedom. Here's what Jesus says. And it puts them in their place and puts us in our place as well. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We are slaves to sin, and that's a problem. It's a problem because we think, oh, I just every now and again I indulge my sinful desires. Jesus says it's not just an indulgence that you can switch on and switch off. Until you're saved by him, until you're set free by him, you are a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin. And the problem is that God says there's a punishment for sin. Does anyone know what that is? What's the punishment for sin? Punishment for sin is death. And so if you're a slave to sin, that is a problem. Let me show you uh, where we see that. In our reading tonight from Psalm 49, it said this, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. Saying here, people who sin, they're going to die and you can't buy them out of it. Or it says again in Mark 8 when Jesus is, uh, is saying, Uh, to his disciples he's talking about the rich people he says what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul so here's the thing you can have 270 million dollars but if you lose your soul none of that will help you none of that will help you so there's no one who can redeem you and there's nothing you can pay to win your soul back that sounds pretty bleak doesn't it 
The reality is that you and I are spiritually broke. There's nothing we can pay God back for the debt that we owe as people who sin before him. We're unable to pay our debts. Well, this leaves us looking for a redeemer. Does anyone know what a redeemer is? What, what would a redeemer do? Oh, yes, go. Sorry, mate. Redeem, nice, well played. Um, Excel says cannot resolve circular reference. Okay, a redeemer is someone who redeems. It's good, but let's see if we can add any more information in. What would what, what a redeemer do? Save people. They would buy them back from slavery, right? So if you're in slavery, what the redeemer would do is, I will buy you out of slavery. So we're enslaved. What are we looking for? Someone to redeem us. In the Bible, God says that he's in the redeeming business. Do you know that? Have a listen to what he says to Moses. Uh, you know that the, uh, the people of God were in Egypt? And when they were in Egypt, they were slaves. Did you know this? They were making more and more Israelites, which is good. But at the same time, they were slaves. And uh, here's what God said to Moses. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. See, God says, hey, slave people, I'm in the redeeming business. I will redeem you. I will buy you out of slavery. And then there's this amazing thing that happens in the life of the Israelites. God gives them something that they need to do because he saved them from Israel. It says, uh, saved them from Egypt. It says this in Exodus 13. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Strange practice, isn't it? God says, I redeemed you. I bought you out of slavery. Your job is to redeem every firstborn animal or male. Because on the night when God set them free, do you remember? On the night of the Passover, what happened in Egypt? All the firstborn were killed. And God says, when you come into the land, you're to remember that you owe me your firstborn. And you don't kill them, what do you do instead? Kill something in place of it. So God says, you'll take a lamb, and the lamb will die in place of the firstborn. So it's a substitute. You will buy the life of the firstborn back from me by having this one die in its place. Okay? That's there. We're going to come back to that uh, a little bit later and see how it sets up what God has to do. I want you to see that through the rest of the Old Testament, God actually is known as the Redeemer. There's this wonderful little psalm there. Psalm 19 says, May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. All throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God says, you want to know my name? He has all sorts of different names. One of those names is Redeemer. I'm the one who buys you back from slavery. I am your Redeemer. And so, Redeemer becomes one of God's names. That's great. And so, hope starts to emerge in the Old Testament. I want to show you two places where that hope emerges. Uh, in Psalm 103, we see, praise the Lord my soul. 
And forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. You see, in Psalm 49, it said, no one can redeem you. And here it says, who can redeem you? The Lord. The Lord redeems your life. And then we see it in Psalm 49, verse 15, it says, but God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to, my, uh, take me to himself. I can't buy the life of another. God, however, can redeem. I'm going to show you how that works, but I want to tell you a principle quickly. Uh, this is my overview of the Bible. Is it, have you seen this before, my overview of the Bible? Uh, here's the Old Testament on that side, New Testament on this side. And the way the two Testaments relate is really important. So we say that the Old Testament is the new concealed. What, that's mean, what that means, it's, this is hard work for Sunday night, so just bear with me, it's going to pay off, okay? Bear with me, okay? What that means is God has stitched into the Old Testament important information that will be revealed in the New Testament, okay? So when you go, who will be the Redeemer? You're wondering as you read the Old Testament. It's all concealed in there. But the New Testament is the Old Revealed. When I get to the New Testament, I understand the New Testament because I look back at the new, at the sorry I understand the New Testament because I look back at the old and go ah that's what it meant when it said this. Does this make sense? So okay, the, the statement is the new is the old revealed and the old is the new concealed. You're sort of with me, is that right? Let me see if I can make this pay off for you. It is it is worth it is worth seeing. So then. When Jesus comes in the New Testament, who is, how is God going to redeem us? Here's what Jesus says in Mark 10. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus is the one who will redeem us. He was the way that God would redeem in the New Testament. So Jesus is God's promised redeemer. Let, let me show you why he is. Jesus is our promised redeemer because he does two things. It says in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. And then in Galatians, it says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And you go, great, that makes perfect sense. Move on. No, let me show you. Okay, here's the thing. There's two things that make Jesus able to redeem us. What did we say the punishment for sin was? Okay, great. Death. When they had a sacrifice in the Old Testament, do you know what they had to do with the sacrifice? They had to kill it? How did you know it was killed in the Old Testament? Lots of blood. Okay, what we do, really graphic, slit its throat. All the blood pours out. Okay? Why does all the blood need to be poured out? What it said in the Bible was, the life is in the blood. When I've got blood in me, guess what? I've got life in me. When there's blood on the ground, guess what has happened to the life? It's come out of me, okay? So the life is in the blood, okay? So here's the thing. Jesus said, Jesus said that he would redeem us by his blood. How does that work? Well, I sin. Do you sin? Okay. I deserve to die, Okay. Jesus has died in my place. He has had his blood spill out in my place. How is he able to do it in my place? Well, because he was obedient. Jesus was the only person who never sinned. Did you know that? Okay. 
If he never sinned, Jesus never deserved what? Okay, great. Here's the reason why we need Jesus. It's in the next slide. I need God to help me because only God could be sinless. All the rest of us will mess it up. I need man because I need someone who's like me. Otherwise, they can't be a substitute for me. So here's what God does. God sends a God-man whose name is? Great, okay? He's also a good man, so that works well as well if you were misreading it slightly. So here's what Jesus does. I can't substitute for you. So say I wanted to die for Ian's sins because I really like him. Good on you, Ian. I'd like to die for your sins, okay? What's the problem? I have to pay a price. What was the price I had to pay? What's the price Ian has to pay? He has to pay death as well. Right. So here's the thing. If I say I'm going to pay Ian's death, right? Ian, I'm going to die in your place. Well, God would go, I see one death between the two of you. Ian, there's another death owed. You're going to have to die for my sins. Do you see how this would work? So I can't die for someone else's sins because they've got a debt and I've got a debt. The uniqueness of Jesus, the only one who never sinned, is that he had no debt to repay. Do you see this? So then he can be my substitute. He dies on the cross, the sinless one, for me who deserve to die for my sins. So my sins are put on Jesus. Jesus dies for my sins so I can be forgiven. Do you get how this works? Because he had no sins to die for. Are you with me? Okay, great. All right. So redemption is only possible in Jesus So it says here, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who's hung on a pole. And you might think, hey, was Jesus hung on a pole? It's a way of talking about the cross. Okay, Jesus became a curse for us. So what is your life worth? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, something happened to help you. Does anyone know what this is about? Yes. Remember something. Has anyone ever tied a string on their finger to remember something? Oh my goodness. Stop the show. Are you for real? Is that right? And then you would what? That's amazing. I I really thought that was just a made up story and it was one of those weird things, but you've done it. That's so excellent. Clearly older than me. Okay. I won't ask any of the other people who might have other additional experience whether they've tied things on their finger, but that's great. So here's the thing. The idea is I do something to myself to remind me of something I need to remember. All right. Here's what God set up in the Old Testament. Have a listen to this. Remember that weird thing about sacrifices for your firstborn? Do you remember that? Okay. It's supposed to be a little bit weird, and we see that in Exodus 13. In the days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean?, Say to him, in other words, Dad, 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 why are you killing a lamb? Why are you killing a lamb for that donkey? That's odd, Dad. Why are you doing it? I think that's fair, isn't it? And here it is. It's anticipating. Someone will say, that's really weird. So when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go. The Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the firstborn male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. 
And there will be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. So what is it? Well, this is what it is. It's a tradition with a tail. We do this strange thing so I can tell you a story. We do this thing so that when you ask the question, I remind you the foundation of Israel is in being saved from slavery. When you see this, you will remember that we were redeemed. We were bought at great price by God. Now, what were you worth? In the Old Testament, you were worth a lamb, at least if you're a boy. How wonderful. What are you worth tonight? This is what you're worth. You're worth his son. God sent his son to die for you in your place. Your worth is established on the cross. It's not in the Forbes top 10 list of athletes. We look back 2,000 years to the way that that God sent his son to die in our place. And we go, what am I worth? I am worth Jesus dying on the cross for me. And you know what? We have a tradition with a tail. Do you know this? We're going to do it tonight. We've got a tradition with a tail. We're going to take a little piece of bread and we're going to drink from a little tiny cup with some juice in it. And it's our tradition with a tail. It's the thing that reminds us how we were formed as a nation, as a group of people, right? Our forming tail reminds us that Jesus died on the cross. We break the bread to remember that his body was broken and we drink the cup to remember that his blood was shed. So we have a tradition with a tail that tells us how we were redeemed. Isn't that great? Oh, this, this passage is too long. <laughs> what I want you to see is that Jesus Christ gave himself, look at the yellow writing, gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. What's Jesus done? For us, he bought us back. He bought us back at the price of his own death. Now look, if that's true, then here's some things that go out. Self-loathing goes out. Does anyone know what self-loathing is? It's this sense that I'm not worth anything. You may have that from the fact that someone has spoken that into your life relentlessly. They've used words that devalue you relentlessly. And what happens over time is that we start to internalize that and we decide, I can't be of any worth. I don't have personal value. And if that's the case, that is an absolute tragedy because the cross says you have incredible worth. You personally were bought at the cost of God's own son. Self-loathing has to go. Not so that you suddenly feel wonderful about yourself, but because you have an objective fact, which is that God sent his son to die for you. A life of guilt is gone. See, why did Jesus forgive our sins? He forgave us our sins so that you could carry around a terrible sense of feeling hopeless and guilty. No, that wasn't why he forgave us our sins. That's not at all why he did it. He did it so that you could be set free. It says, if the sun sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Right? So if you walk around all the time feeling, I'm terrible, this is a kind of a modification of self-loathing, isn't it? God, you know what I've done I can't forgive myself for what I've done, so how could you? Does anyone? But here's the thing. 
God has utterly, completely, and totally forgiven you your sins. He has washed the slate clean. He says you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. That's why our church is called New Life. The new is come. And so if you're walking around going, I feel totally guilty all the time, who's the only person who would want you to feel totally guilty all the time? The devil. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. In Romans 8, 1, it says, there is no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you walk around feeling guilty all the time, number one, get right with Jesus. So ask him, set me free, Jesus, and he will. Beyond that point, the only one who keeps whispering in your ear is the devil, not God. Find in him freedom from guilt. Thirdly, what what goes out is a life of superiority. See, maybe some people can kick a ball and be worth $93 million this year, but they're no more worth anyone else before the cross of Jesus. Only one life paid the price for them, same as you, same as me. Any sense of superiority has to die before the cross. And so I want to ask you, are you willing to revisit your worth in light of the cross? Instead of that, we should focus on being thankful. If I told you that someone had died for you in your place, you'd be relatively thankful, I would think, yeah? What if that person was the son of God? Should we be thankful? Yeah, I think we should, right? Oh, naturally, we should be thankful. We should seek holiness. If he saved me from sin, I should go back and wallow in sin. So we should live a new life. We should ask for forgiveness. So tonight, if you haven't asked for God's forgiveness, tonight is a great night to get saved, to say, God, set me free. I don't want to carry a life of guilt around. I want to know what it is to be set free by you. So we should ask for forgiveness, and we should be people who offer it. And maybe Christmas is a special time when you need to remember this and you think everyone around me is crazy. They have such short tempers. I don't know why they can't see that I'm right all the time. Lord, help me to forgive as I've been forgiven. Are you willing to let redemption change how you relate to God and others? Remembering our story. In short, We need to stop judging the worth of people by money. It's a hopeless standard. The lens we need, only one. Look right here and know that everyone has equal value before God. This is a world-changing piece of information. It said slaves and masters could be brothers and sisters. Change the world. At the start of uh, Luke's account of Jesus' life, Zechariah says this, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. That's what we're celebrating tonight. I want you to stay stay sane this Christmas, some Christmas sanity. How will you do it? Remember your worth. Don't spend too much on presents. Don't spend too little on presents. Think about the God who gives you worth in his sight. Amen. Hey, we do this thing uh, called Q&A, and the idea is that you have a chance to ask questions. So if at some point there it got a bit sketchy in your understanding on the way through, you could ask a clarifying question. You could uh, maybe ask a question that's really a comment and say, hey, Stuart, you didn't make uh, very much about this, but can I mention this? Uh, Has someone got a question uh, that they would like to ask to clarify something that I said tonight or to follow up something?
So with the kind of substitution thing, if we're thinking very practically a life for a life, yeah. um, how can Jesus take more take the sin of more than one life when it really is just one life for a life? Is it because he's just God and he can do it? Or like how does that work out? Yeah. He can take the sins of all the world. That's a really good question. So if I was to if I was to be sinless, it's never gonna happen. If I was to be sinless, I could only ever die for one person because I've only got one person's worth of life. When the Son of God was made into flesh, he is divine and human at the same time. Remember we said he's the God man? That enables him to die for more than one person. That's the nature of what it means for him to be divine and human. So yes, it's a great question. How can he die for more than one person? Because he's a unique person. He's the God man. And it's the reason that no one else could be our saviour. Only one who is human and God, fully God and fully man, would be able to die for more than one life. That's the nature of his divinity. So it's a great question, though, and um, otherwise it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Someone else? Question? Yeah. Ellie. So at the beginning you talked about how, you know, the average person says, I don't need to be free, I'm not a slave. So when you're talking to people... How does that conversation go? Mm. Uh, so I don't think I've had that particular conversation, but here's how I would approach it. I think I shared it with you a couple of weeks ago. It's my Christmas Day illustration. Do I share this with you? Okay, all right. Uh, who gets presents at Christmas time if you um, are a Santa person? If you're a Santa person, who gets presents? Children, yes. And how do children get presents? What do they have to be? He's got making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's. Okay, very good. Everyone's everyone's across this. So here's the thing. I, I think I'm sure I told you, but so apologies. But if I repeat myself, but here's the thing. Here's what I'd say. I used to decide that I would be very nice on Christmas afternoon because I think here's how many presents I got. I was pretty cr- terrible last year, and I got presents. So that's pretty good. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to double down on being nice this, this year, right? I'm going to have a whole year of being nice. What will be waiting for me in 12 months' time? It'll be spectacular, right? How long do you reckon I lasted? Well, probably into the early afternoon. I pushed my brother or spoke something to my sister I shouldn't have said. Almost immediately, I found myself doing stuff that would fall short of God's standard, that would fall short of my attempt to be nice, And so all I'd say to you is, if you believe that you are not a slave to sin, go without sinning for a week. Just choose to. How are we going to do, folks? I think experientially, any honest human, there's your first sin if you, but any honest human would agree, right? Would agree, we're going to just fall short of that standard. So if you were to say to me, I am not a slave to sin, I'd say, no, it's no worries. Use your free will to freely choose to not sin in the next week. Can't do it. And if we can't do it, what does it tell us about ourselves? Well, it says that we're enslaved. Yeah? So I don't know, Ali, does that help in any way? Not really? Come on, do a follow-up. Because you're looking a bit, oh, I don't, I don't really like that answer. Oh, I know that's a true answer. Yes. I just don't know that that cuts it with people because... They would say, well, okay, I didn't murder, I didn't steal that week. I guess, how do you, I mean, I know theologically it's the Holy Spirit, know all that. Um, but, yeah, how, how do we convince people that they are sinful, yeah. that we aren't, that we do have that problem? 
I think that's a really helpful question. Uh, so my answer to that is whenever I'm talking to people who aren't believers and we're having one of those conversations, I'm actually praying as I talk with them. Okay? So I might be looking at you and I might be chatting with you, but I'm praying. Okay? Myself personally, as I look at you, I'm saying, Lord, soften their hearts. Holy Spirit, show them what it is right now that they need to know to be convicted of their guilt. It's your work, not mine. I'm going to keep talking. I'm going to give my illustrations. I'm going to use the scripture. But at the end of the day, I'm praying all the time, Holy Spirit, you're going to have to do the work here. And if I walk away from that conversation and someone isn't convinced that they're a sinner, guess who I blame? No, I don't blame. But I'm happy to say, God, that's your work, not mine. I didn't necessarily fail here. If I get the best set of words in the world, but they've got a hard heart, I can't make them get it. It is always divinely revealed. And so I just want to encourage you to be more prayerful in your evangelism. And it's not a matter of magic answers, I don't think. Smart answers, good strategies, all that. But in the end of the day, I think it's God revealed. And I would say, can I show you in the Bible? And if we read the Bible with people, the Bible's the word of God. I think it shapes people. But in the end, hard-hearted, angry atheists aren't going to walk away going, oh, I'm so convicted of my sin. What must I do to be saved? I, I, I just think that takes time, in which case I'm going to pray more. Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, any follow-up question to that? We're right? Okay. Come and talk to me afterwards anyway, or write it on your Caring Connect card and I can follow up with you.